0: People love to make excuses, don't they? It's one of our favorite pastimes, and we all do it. We all make excuses. Uh, But some people are especially creative at cooking up excuses uh, when they're in trouble or when they think they are in trouble. Here are some actual excuses about automobile accidents (laughs) taken from police reports, court transcripts, and insurance documents. These are the real deal. A pedestrian hit me and then went under my car. There was nothing I could do. I had been driving for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel. Well, I imagine so. (laughs) The accident was caused by me waving to the man I hit last week. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. This this is one of my favorites. I didn't think the speed limit applied after midnight. Come on. The pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I ran him over. (laughs) Teach him. Windshield broke. Cause unknown. Probably voodoo. I'm not sure exactly what's going on here. The gentleman behind me struck me on the backside. Then he went to rest in a bush with just his rear end showing. I was sure the old fellow would never make it to the other side of the road when I struck him. <laughs> I told the police that I was not injured, but upon removing my hat, I found that I had a fractured skull. The accident happened because I had one eye on the truck in front, one eye on the pedestrian, and the other on the car behind. I want to meet this person. (laughs) Sometimes it's almost poetry. I saw a slow-moving, sad-faced old gentleman as he bounced off the roof of my car. (laughs) And then one that goes in the I know exactly how they feel category. I pulled away from the side of the road glanced at my mother-in-law, and drove over the embankment. Absolutely. (laughs) But surely, she's not here, Ron, so I can't get in trouble today. You're going to call call her. (laughs) her. But surely, our all-time favorite excuse when we mess up, when we do something wrong, is this. And everybody says, oh, well, nobody's perfect. Of course not. Have you ever met a perfect person? <laughs> I heard about a preacher who asked that question of his congregation one time. He really wasn't expecting an answer, but way in the back. you know, He said, "Does anybody ever met a perfect person? Rhetorical question, way in the back. A little old man raised his hand. The preacher called on him. He said, Mr. Jones, you've met a perfect person? And the old man said, yes, sir, I have. And the preacher said, well, just who would that be? And the old man said, my wife's first husband. Now, it wouldn't be a Sunday if I didn't give you a reason to boo. Come on. But now listen. I have met a perfect person. A lot of you have too. His name is Jesus. The the only perfect person who ever lived. Now think about that. 33 years on this earth, Jesus never sinned in thought, word, or deed. Can you conceive that? It's amazing. Jesus grew up without any sin. No terrible twos. Right? No childhood misbehavior. No, no teenage rebellion. No wild oat-sowing college years. Parents, can you imagine? No, you can't because it's never happened. Except for that one man. Jesus, who never sinned. And because of that... Everything changes for you and me. It's impossible for us to overstate the significance of the perfection of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to talk about that. We're going to see if we can get our heads around why that means so much to you and me. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, if you want to turn over there. And that's just kind of where we're going to start. We're going to be... ping-ponging today through the scripture. I encourage you to use your insert that's in your message notes folder. You can follow the scriptures along there um, as well and uh, up on the screen as we go. But two verses in Hebrews 4 summarize the, the entire theology, the entire thought of the sinlessness of Jesus. I'm going to read Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. This... High priest of ours, that's Jesus, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. In these verses, first of all, we see the reality of Jesus' sinlessness, the reality of it. I, I think when Paul says there in Hebrews, when Paul says that Jesus faced all of the same testings we do, and yet he did not sin, I think that he has to be thinking about the time when Jesus met Satan in the wilderness at the time of his temptation or you may remember, you may remember reading Jesus very, very early, as he be, before he began his public ministry, he went into the wilderness and he was there for 40 days. He fasted for 40 days and at the end of that time, Satan came to him and tempted him and, and Jesus was tempted by Satan in every way that you and I are tempted. Because, see, Satan only has three ways that he can tempt us. There's only three ways that Satan tempts Anybody. And there's a description of those temptations in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Listen to this. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. Now you may uh, be more familiar with how the King James Version expresses that. Because in the King James Version, it says, um, it talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. That's it. That's how we're tempted when temptation comes. That's how Eve, who was the very first person ever tempted in the Bible, that's how she was tempted. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it it tells about her encounter uh, with with, with old old no-shoulders, all right? With that With that serpent. That was Satan's hand puppet, right? And it says, she saw that the tree was beautiful, lust of the eyes, and that its fruit looked delicious, lust of the flesh. It was going to taste good, right? It, It seemed desirable to her, some translations say. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. She wanted to know things. She wanted to be wise, pride of life. That's how she was tempted. That's how we're all tempted. Those are the things that tempt us. And that's how Jesus was tempted. That's what Hebrews tells us. Tempted in all the same ways, just like us. If we look in in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, that's where we read about Jesus' temptation. and I want to look at a portion of that this morning. We start off in verse 3, Luke chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. Now, make sure you get the picture. Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days. He hasn't eaten anything during that time. He's fasted. Satan says, If you're the son of God, make yourself some bread. I know you're hungry. I know, I, I know you, you, you want it. I know that you desire something to eat. In other words, the devil was saying to Jesus, Hey, if it feels good and if it's something you want to do, do it. What's stopping you? See, God had told Jesus to fast. Satan tells Jesus to eat. Pastor Peter Lord said one time, I'll never forget hearing him say this, temptation is the devil trying to get us to fulfill a natural God-given drive or desire in the wrong way. You see, there's nothing wrong with our drives and desires. There's nothing wrong with our hunger drive, our thirst drive, or our Sex drive? Now, hey, come on. This is big people church, right? We can talk about adult topics in here, can't we? I hope so. If you don't want us to talk about adult topics, I don't know. Maybe there's a place for you in 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 children's church. I don't know. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. God created us with those drives and desires. What is wrong is letting those drives and desires control us, right? Making a a God out of them, making an idol out of them. Satan wanted Jesus to make bread his God. He wanted Jesus to want bread more than he wanted to trust God to take care of his needs and desires. And you know, today, there are people who make an idol out of sex. They basically worship it. They'll do anything, even if it's wrong, to fulfill that desire. There are other people who do the same thing with drugs and alcohol. Don't they? They, they? they like how it makes them feel. They'll do anything to get that feeling, to have that desire, that drive. Met. There are even some people <coughs> who have done the same thing with their physical bodies. Now listen, again. Please hear me, there's nothing wrong with eating the right food and drinking the right things and loving the right way. The problem is that our enemy, the devil, takes what's good and turns it into something bad. There's nothing wrong with sex. God designed it. It is part of God's creation. God designed it, but listen, it's to be between a man and a woman who are married to each other, right? There's nothing wrong with sex, but there is something wrong with adultery. There's nothing wrong with eating. We all have to do it to survive, don't we? (laughs) But there's something wrong with gluttony. You know what? I just got tired of being a fat pastor. Now, I'm not near where I need to be, but I'm 58 pounds closer to where I need to be. No don't I, you want to I'll come see me I'll brag about it in person <laughs> but there's something else and this has bothered me since I was a kid i'd hear these pastors rail on smoking and drinking and they couldn't see their own feet well, exactly. you know, I never heard them talk about being as big as a refrigerator <laughs> listen I mean it's everywhere the news is everywhere isn't it that we have a obesity epidemic in this nation. Now, bless your heart. Listen, I'm right there with you. Still. Obviously, right? And and, and understand there's grace for us. But you know what a wake-up call for me was? The Bible says, it's in Proverbs chapter 23. It says, if you are given to gluttony, some translations say if you are a man of strong appetites, put a knife to your throat. That's how important it is to make sure that our drives and desires are being satisfied and taken care of in the right way. There's nothing wrong with beauty. There's nothing wrong with wanting to look our best, to, to, to be in good shape. But there is something wrong with vanity. Okay? Jesus made sure that the devil understood that his appetite was for God and for the Word of God. He says in verse 4, Luke 4, verse 4. But Jesus told him, no. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. In other words, Satan, this life is not about meeting my desires and my needs and my drives any old way I feel like it without regard to anything or anybody. I won't do it. I'll do it God's way. The temptation goes on in verse 5. Luke chapter 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. The devil's such a liar. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Now what's happening here? Satan is tempting Jesus with authority and glory and kingdoms, right? He's tempting him with power and, and, and position and possessions. Another way that we say it in our culture is just good old fame and fortune. And again, there's absolutely nothing wrong with ambition. Nothing wrong with it. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a man uh, with ambition. He was a man who had a desire to accomplish things. He said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, I press on to reach the end of the race and to receive the heavenly prize uh, for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. I press on. I exert effort. I try. I'm working to get to a goal, to achieve a goal. So there's nothing wrong with having goals, ambitions, aspirations, as long as they're submitted to the will of God. You see, Jesus gave us a prescription for ambition. It's in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. That's where Jesus said, Seek the kingdom of God, what? Above all else, seek the kingdom of God first and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. In other words, instead of seeking gain, seeking glory, seek God. And let everything else take care of itself. So Jesus once again he demonstrates he's already demonstrated he's got his appetite, right? Now he demonstrates that he has his ambition, right? And he says to the devil in verse 8, Luke 4 verse 8, that Jesus replied, the scriptures say, You must worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. Will you remember this? Whenever our enemy, the devil, offers us something, and I don't care how beautiful it is, or how sweet it tastes, or how nice it smells, it always involves two things. One, there will always be a cost. There will always be a cost. It may cost us a clear conscience. It may cost us our reputation. It may cost us peace of mind. It may cost us our health. It may cost us our family. There's always, always a cost. And two, there will always be a compromise. We may have to compromise our morals or our ethics or our principles our values, our convictions. But something, listen, if we accept what the devil offers us, something will have to slide, to drift, to loosen up. And we will find ourselves in a place where we never thought we'd go. Somebody said, I don't even know who said it. can't even attribute the quotation to you, but somebody said, and I believe it, Sin always takes us farther than we want to go and costs us more than we want to pay. If Jesus had listened to the devil, it would have cost you and me our souls. It would have cost our souls. It would have compromised our salvation and cost us eternal life. Temptation goes on. Verse 9, Luke 4, verse 9. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. This was the temptation to to look out for number one, to be number one. This was the invitation to, to be selfish. And self-centered, right? Satan is tempting Jesus to say, Hey, I'm, I don't care what anybody else does. I'm going to do me. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do it my way. Well, God's way was the cross. And here was the devil saying, Jesus, let's just bypass all that. Let's bypass three years of intense opposition And and sacrifice and struggle. Let's bypass a a brutal uh, uh, death, which is would actually be preceded by a, a huge miscarriage of justice, unfairness. Let's just bypass all that and go straight for the glory. Go straight for the crown. But Jesus wouldn't fall for that trap either. He's already proven his appetite and his ambitions were right. Now he proves that he's got his attitude right. Look at verse 12. Jesus responded. The scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. In other words, don't push the limits. Don't cross the boundaries. Get behind me, Satan. I'm going to do this thing God's way. I'm going to do God's will God's way. And then the next thing that we see after the reality of his sinlessness is the reason for his sinlessness. See, Jesus was not only fully God, he was fully man. He he had a divine nature, he had a human nature. Now, Jesus didn't have a sin nature, but he had a human nature. He was, remember, he's the second Adam, so he's just as human as the first Adam was. All right? He was born physically. He grew up. He had to to grow up. I got in trouble long years and years and years ago when I was a youth pastor because I preached one Sunday night and I said that when Jesus was a teenager, he probably had acne. Man, I thought the blue-haired old ladies were gonna kill me. (laughs) They're ferocious. (laughs) But but I think it's true. Jesus grew. Hey, Jesus got hungry. He got thirsty, he got tired, he got sleepy. He died a physical death. When he bled, it was real blood. He was fully human, but he was also fully sinless. There was no sin in him. In in John chapter 8, verse 46, Jesus asked a rhetorical question of the the crowd that was there to hear him. He said, which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? And the answer to that was nobody could. Man, the people who knew him best, two of his closest followers were Peter and John. And John said this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. He said, you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. And then Peter, well, hot-headed Peter, critical, angry, negative, fault-finding Peter, he said this about Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He never sinned, never deceived anyone. So the people that were closest to him, that traveled with him for, for in, in excess of three years, they couldn't accuse him of sin. His enemies couldn't accuse him of sin. Uh, Pontius Pilate, who actually signed off on his execution, uh, said he's not guilty of any crime. Judas, the one who actually betrayed him, said, I have sinned because I've betrayed an innocent man. The thief on the cross, who just a few minutes before had been blaspheming Jesus and and, and cursing Jesus and ridiculing him, he finally said, hey, we deserve to die for our sins, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. The centurion who oversaw his execution, he said, surely this man was innocent. His friends couldn't accuse him of sin. His enemies couldn't accuse him of sin. But listen, beyond all that, God the Father never accused him of sin. In fact, God said something about Jesus that had never before been said about anyone else. In fact, up until Jesus came along, God looked at the entire human race, and he said this. It's in Psalm 53, verse 3. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. No one does good. Not a single one. That was God's view of people. But then Jesus comes along. And in fact, twice, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and near the end, God makes the same statement about him. He says, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Isaiah was Israel's greatest prophet. And you know what he said? I'm doomed because I'm a sinful man. I have unclean lips. I've got a dirty mouth. I come from a people with dirty mouths. I'm doomed. That was the greatest prophet who ever lived. David was Israel's greatest king. And he said, I, I recognize sin and rebellion in myself. It haunts me day and night, he said. Paul. Apostle Paul, the greatest preacher, the greatest missionary who ever lived, he said, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all. You know how the King James says it? I am the chief of sinners. There's sinners, and then there's the boss of sinners. Paul said, that's me. But listen to what Jesus said about himself. John 8, 29. The one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases him. Without fail, without a misstep, without a mistake. (laughs) Jesus and sin were complete strangers to each other. That's why he's our example. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, except Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glorious standard of God, except Jesus. God commands all men everywhere to repent, except Jesus. Because Jesus never lost sleep over a guilty conscience. He he never blushed over, over a shameful comment. He never had to regret any sinful behavior. There was never an unclean thought that that flashed through his mind. There was never an unkind word that crossed his lips. There was never an unrighteous deed that came from his behavior. If you want to sum up Jesus' character and how he conducted himself, how he thought and felt and behaved, he was absolutely perfect. And the importance of that. Cannot be overstated as we look at the result of his sinlessness. Here, here's the meat, folks. Here is why it is so significant and relevant to every one of us. Here's why we can't just shrug our shoulders and go, Okay, yeah, Jesus didn't sin. He was sinless. So what? And flip to the next page in our Bible. We actually saw the answer a few minutes ago when we read Hebrews 4:16 which says so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious god there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most because we have a sinless savior we can always find we can all, listen we can always find two things in abundance mercy and grace We need mercy for our past. We need grace for the present. We need mercy because we have sinned, and we need grace because we do sin. See, two things are true because we have a sinless Savior. First of all, our salvation is secure. Now, I know I've talked a lot about that in the last little bit. But listen... I think getting our head and our heart around the security of our salvation, I think that is the key to the victorious Christian life. You, you showed me someone who has no assurance, no uh, certainty about their salvation, and I'll also show you somebody who is miserable in their Christian walk. Absolutely miserable. Christian, the Christian life is not working for that person. Jesus could only bear our sin because he had no sin of his own. Think about it. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, how did he pray? He said, Father, forgive who? Them. He never, Jesus never prayed, Father, forgive me. Never once. If Jesus had had, had to pray that even one time, if he'd ever had to pray, Father, forgive me, then God could never have forgiven us. You see, if Jesus had sinned even one time, it would have set off a horrible chain reaction that we would never have recovered from. Because if if Jesus had sinned even one time, He could not be a substitute for our sin. And if He was not our substitute, then He couldn't be our Savior. And if He's not our Savior, then there would be no salvation. And, And if there was no salvation, then we're still lost and heading for hell with no hope of heaven. The only reason we have access to mercy and grace is because we have a sinless substitute and a savior. It's the only reason. But what's the difference? What's the difference between mercy and grace? Well, mercy is when we do not get what we deserve. Because, folks, we deserve to be punished for our sin. We deserve to receive the penalty for our sin. We deserve to die. For our sin, but because we have a sinless Savior as our substitute, God does not give us the hell we deserve. And here's where we shift over and talk about grace. See, then God does give us what we don't deserve His love, His acceptance, His forgiveness. When God gives us the heaven that we don't deserve, that's grace. That's it. The old hymn. The old hymn says, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. then secondly, our sanctification is certain. Now, sanctification. There's a kind of a Uh, An old, kind of theological, kind of churchy word. So let's see if we can break it down a little bit. To be, thousands of years ago, the first time that word entered uh, the language, it it meant one thing. It simply meant to take something out of a group and set it aside. That was the base meaning of that word. Take something out of a group and, and set it aside. Later on, it came to mean to set something aside for a holy purpose. It's the same word from which we get our word saint. So what sanctification is, is the process of the Holy Spirit working in us, making us more and more like Jesus in the way we think and feel and behave. That's what sanctification is. Now, people have argued for centuries about sanctification. Because some people think that we get it all when we get saved. Right? That when we place our our faith in in Christ, that that we are just as sanctified as we're ever going to get. Instantaneous sanctification, they'll talk about. And then there are others, and maybe you know them. I know for a fact that some of you came from churches that teach progressive sanctification. that, that, That teach that sanctification is something that happens to us gradually or progressively over the course of the rest of our life. And then there are still others who think that we won't be sanctified, we won't have a, a, a snowball's chance at sanctification until Christ returns and we go to heaven. Well, Pastor Scott, which one is right? You know what my answer is? Yes. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to take the easy way out. I'm telling you that I think that the sanctification is such an awesome thing. It's such an incredible work of God that it can't be contained by any one of those views. In fact, to get a full view of sanctification, we kind of have to look at all three. Because think about this. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. That past tense? Some of my teachers tell me. Am I, is that past tense? Has become? Okay. The old life is what? Gone. G O M Gone. a new life has begun. Now you add to that the fact. You can't get around this. It's all over the New Testament. Over and over and over again, believers are called saints. See, we think that you have to die, right? And and, uh, have done some kind of a miracle. And then some church body somewhere declares you a saint. No, God declares us a saint. And he does it the instant we give our lives to Christ. Okay? But the Bible also says this. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. It says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So God is still working on us. And aren't you glad? Yes, I am glad for you. He's still working on you. Some of you, I have to remind myself of that when I talk to you and I meet with you. He's still working on us. But now what happens? What happens if our life is cut short and that process wasn't finished? Is God going to say, you know, you only got up to 10% sanctification? Uh, You kind of need to be like at 51% to... Go to heaven, you just didn't quite... No, that's not going to happen. Why? Because if anyone is not in Christ, he is a new person, a new creation, right? But God is still obviously at work on us. And then finally, and you only have to remember back as far as last week, Okay, we closed out our Jude study and we talked about the truth that we saw in Jude, verse 24, where it says, now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. So yes, we are sanctified, we are being sanctified, and we will be sanctified when we see Jesus face to face and are completely changed into his likeness. But let me tell you what the most important part is. The only reason sanctification is even possible is because we have a sinless Savior. See, only someone who has had a complete victory over sin can offer us victory over sin. Jesus made a great statement about the devil in John chapter 14, verse 30. He's talking to his followers He says, I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. The devil is coming after me. He has no power over me. Now, that preposition there that's translated over can also be translated in. The devil has no power in me. But it can also be translated on. I love that. Jesus is saying, the devil ain't got nothing on me. And he ain't got nothing on you either. me, because we're in Jesus Christ. The devil has no hold on us. He has no power over us. First John chapter 4, verse 4. You belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the Spirit who lives in you is greater than the Spirit who lives in the world. Greater is He who is in you. He who is in the world. How awesome it is to know that a sinless Savior can turn a shameful sinner into a sanctified saint. We have a a sinless Savior, and that means we never have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of the devil. We don't have to be afraid of temptation, and we don't have to be afraid of sin. We have victory in Jesus. Bow your heads, please, and close your eyes.